we're looking into the king's authority and priority. And the previous Sunday, we watched how Jesus demonstrated his priority of preaching the good news that he is a king who can actually forgive sins against a holy God. And he shows his authority to forgive those sins sort of externally by healing a man who previously had paralyzed legs. Authority and priority in this one story. And you can recall his claim to forgive a person's sins. His claim to forgive a person's rebellion against God was met with some skepticism, some doubt, even the charge of blasphemy. Because only God can forgive sins. In fact, not even in the writings about the Messiah. So you have the Old Testament, right? And in addition to the Old Testament, people were so excited about the coming Messiah who would restore all of Israel that they wrote extra writings hypothesizing, theorizing about who this Messiah would be and what he would do. And these writings over time became authoritative. People would look at them. Who would this Messiah be? Not even in those writings did it ever make the claim or the assumption this Messiah would be able to forgive sins. Would he be a powerful man? Yes. Would he restore the monarchy? Yes. Would he restore the full glory to Israel? Yes. Could he forgive sins against the Holy God? Never claimed. So when people hear that this Jesus says he can forgive sins, that went above even messianic claims. This is what the scribes came to the countryside for, to examine these kind of claims, this new religious zealot named Jesus. And Luke 5 makes it pretty clear that they came from big city religious centers, likely on a fact-finding mission to gauge this new rabbi's faithfulness to the law of Yahweh and, and his potential danger to the purity and power of the Jewish religion. Having heard the authority of his claim to forgive sin, and seen it backed up by healing a, a man previously paralyzed. Now he's walking home. What will he do next? What will happen next? We can't imagine how many people might follow such a man, a man who's willing to forgive sin, make that claim, and then back it up by healing people. Real people. And these townspeople have known their whole lives. Scores of people, thousands of people might follow such a man. So what do they do? They resolve to travel with Jesus a little further. Watch Him a little longer. Until the end of today's episode. And then they leave. They investigate Him. They watch Him a little longer. Until the end of today's episode. Then they leave. Why is this? In fact, after this episode, we get other question askers and skeptics among Jesus' audience, but they're not the religious bigwigs. We get questions about fasting. We're going to see in a little bit. We get questions about God's day of rest. We get questions about when does God want to heal people, when does He not? Jesus also goes on to heal some blind men. He teaches on the potential of God's kingdom, even makes a prayer request of other people about that kingdom. 
these moments at least take place, whether they be days, weeks, months, we don't know. But all this time passes without official surveillance of the highest religious authorities looking in, big brother on Jesus. Only at this point, after these things take place, does Mark call a great crowd begin to follow Jesus again. A great crowd begins to follow Jesus. We see in chapter 3, verse 7, such that Mark tells us that Jesus nearly crushed Crushed is the word he used. Crushed by the amount of people. And so he has to start teaching and healing from a boat offshore. Such a big crowd that Jesus' disciples can't even sit down for a meal. They can't even find a place to sit and have a meal together. It says in chapter 3, verse 20, Why am I mentioning the future? Why am I going further into Mark? So I want to show something here. Mark purposely connects the size of the crowd with the return of the scribes. He says in chapter 3, verse 22, the scribes came down from Jerusalem at this moment. When the scribes see the crowds get big again, uh-oh, we better come back down and see what's going on with Jesus. What is he teaching? What is he doing? What is he saying Why do they return? Mark makes it pretty clear. It's because Jesus is officially drawing a dangerously large-sized crowd that might totally revolutionize the entire Jewish faith. Why then do they leave in the first place? Because there's this gap of time. They leave after this episode we're going to read today for the same reason, crowds. Something happens in today's episode that causes these religious authorities to conclude after this, there's no way people are going to follow this guy. After this, there's no way, especially serious Jews, people serious about their faith, will follow this man Jesus. I believe they thought there's no way he's any longer a serious threat. He wasted any opportunity he had to capitalize on his authority. Remember what we read last week? People walked away in amazement at Jesus. So the authorities keep following him. What's he going to do next? What happens next causes them to conclude, nope, he just flushed it down the toilet. Let's call it a day and go home. What was it? What happens that would cause people to say, you know what? Jesus isn't a threat any longer. Let's read together. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. So again, we see Jesus' priority here to teach about the gospel, to preach about the gospel. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Levi rose, and he followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, 
he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The scribes of the Pharisees considered Jesus to have flushed all the chips, all the amazement he just garnered down the proverbial toilet. Jesus uses his authority to recruit a no-name scum of the earth, multiply scum-of-the-earth disciples, and teach a scum-of-the-earth love and cure. The scribes walk away from Jesus because God condescends. Let's pray and get to work understanding what that means. Father, we see here an important moment in Jesus' ministry where he takes a peak moment, a moment to capitalize on. Um, People have just walked away in amazement at Jesus. Who has, we've never seen anyone do anything like this, they're saying as they walk away. You've shown a priority of forgiving people their sins and, and showing that through a, a miracle in front of tons of people. And then you condescend. You use your authority to love people considered the scum of the earth. Teach us what that means for our lives this morning, we ask. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who was going through med school. He shared with me a time he was doing rounds in med school, and he was doing this along with two other med students, uh, with a guy named Dr. Cooper, an oncologist. And he was visiting patients. And when you visit patients, you sort of, you know, with the doctor, you shadow the doctor, kind of see what he's doing, watch how he interacts with patients, and watch what he does. And they went around, and in one room, there was an 11-year-old boy in chemotherapy. As he talked to this boy, you could feel the gravity as this boy talked back with him. You could feel the pain and the, the anguish, but also the honesty of the boy. So the doctor asked him, you know, just let me know how you're doing. Slowly, the boy talks back. And he says, you know, Dr. Cooper, I feel nauseous a lot. You know, like even now I feel nauseous. And in that moment, the boy turns and he starts throwing up. And right then... Dr. Cooper takes, he's got scrubs on, takes off his shirt, and he makes a kind of bowl with his shirt catching this vomit. And as he's done vomiting the boy, Dr. Cooper grabs a, a towel, multiple towels, and beside the boy's bed, and sort of wipes his mouth, puts his arm around him, continues to encourage the boy, care for him, love him well. And they go outside, he and the other med students in the hall. My friend asked him the question, you know, Dr. Cooper, that was really hard to watch. Just just so we know for the future, shouldn't we normally sort of call in a nurse to do that sort of thing? When when someone starts to throw up, call in a nurse at that point. And oh man, Dr. Cooper, he said, just absolutely went off. Oh, so we're too important. We're too important to comfort someone who's throwing up for his cancer medications. So if that were to happen to you, you would call someone lower on the totem pole, right, to do the dirty work for you. He said, no, man, if you want to be a doctor, you'll go to every length, even risk your life to help and to heal, whatever the situation calls for. 
Now, this doctor risked many things with this boy, right? In this moment, he risked his reputation. You know, are doctors really supposed to do this sort of thing? He risks infection, right? This is a spontaneous moment. He doesn't scrub up. He doesn't put on gloves. He just takes off a shirt and he catches a boy's vomit. Everything that goes along with it. And he risks, finally, setting a precedent by which others might try to take advantage of him. Oh, don't worry. Dr. Cooper, he'll take care of it. Right? All the nurses gather around. You know, Dr. Cooper, he'll, you don't really need to be of much help in that moment. Dr. Cooper will do all the dirty work for you. This is exactly what Jesus does here in this momentous part of his ministry. And in his incarnation and ministry in general, through what theologians call God's condescension. And you know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at condescension, right? There's the condescension of when people speak down to you and you say they're condescending. But there's another kind of condescension where people get down to you, right? They get on your level and they help you. And I want to recover that part of condescension. I don't mean the kind of condescension where someone talks down to you as if you're supposed to come up to them, but the kind of condescension where someone gets down to you and brings you up with them. This is God's condescension in Jesus Christ. A holy, perfect, untainted God in heaven who did send people lower on the totem pole. People called the prophets to urge stubborn rebels to return to relationship with God. To urge them to come back to know God again. But where other religions continue to talk about prophets and words and a still untainted God sitting up in heaven the God of the Bible, he actually does something. He does something about it. Like Dr. Cooper, the great physician comes directly to the aid of all mankind. And in doing so, he risks infection. He risks reputation. He risks being taken advantage of as he offers a miracle cure to people. God the Son comes. Think about just when Jesus comes to this earth. Death immediately tries to infect him, right? As Herod kills off every male child in Bethlehem two years old or younger. Death immediately goes for Jesus, right when he comes out of the womb. And he continues his whole life. The big announcement about the coming of God's Son is trumpeted to the lowliest of livelihoods, shepherds, right? They don't have any reputation, Even if a shepherd says, guess what? God's king has come. Who's going to listen to a shepherd? Who will believe? No reputation. Not to mention he's born amongst cattle to the lowliest tribe and the lowliest city in all of Israel. What good can come from Nazareth? It was the most backwater of backwater towns. Hickville, people might call it. There beginning of his ministry, in front of the persons that his PR people would have advised him to impress the most, the scribes of the Pharisees, the most important of important religious people, he condescends again. He calls his next disciple. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, a tax collector, among all the professions for a Jew, was 
the most conscious that the very nature of his position would make him an ally to the hated Romans, to the more hated Herod of Antipas. People hated this guy. And the only way for him to make money was to extort extra taxes from a fellow Jew. And then skim off the top for yourself. That was like your commission. Everything else went to the government, to Herod. The way you made money, extort people a little bit more, take that money off the top. So you knew getting into the profession, I will cheat my own people out of money. Jesus recruits to his inner circle, then an enemy to political, to the social, to the religious fabric of Judaism. You can imagine, reputation, these are the kind of people Jesus calls to himself to be part of his inner circle. Jesus risks it for people like us. But it doesn't stop there. Look in verse 15. As he reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples For there were many, and the grammar here means by many, they're referring back to the tax collectors and sinners. There were many such people who followed Jesus. In other words, Mark's not trying to emphasize here that there's tons of people following Jesus. There are many other tax collectors joining in. Jesus enjoyed table fellowship, dinner fellowship, the most intimate kind of fellowship with enemies to the religious people. Enemies of the social fabric. Men who knew their priority was making money. Their career was advanced at the expense of naysayers who said, oh, you're not supposed to do that. And a guilty conscience, which they may or may not have decided to numb through things like alcohol and drink. They knew what they were doing. They knew that their life, their priority, was centered around money. Self-advancement. And they knew it. Close fellowship. He stands vulnerable amongst the most, the strongest idolaters of money and of secularism and all of Israel. Jesus is willing to risk being infected by sin to rescue sinners who know they need saving. And make no mistake, friends, Jesus was vulnerable. He was a man. And here he stands among people who wanted nothing more than money, but they also knew that they needed saving. And Jesus teaches this then explicitly. Verse 17, he goes on to what he's done by example, make explicit through his words. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call righteous people, but sinners. These are hopeless people. People diseased who keep getting sick. If you try to help a tax collector, what are they going to do? Just going to take advantage of you. It's going to be like a dog who takes your gift of love and returns to their own vomit. Or like pigs who receive your precious gift and return to their own filth. You're just going to waste it. Here's a man claiming to forgive sin, and he's come for the sickest. Won't people take advantage of him? People always have. They've always taken advantage of Jesus, and they always will. But of course, they never really get Jesus. The tax collectors did. They were in a a job and they had an identity where not only you felt, but you believed you were the scum of the earth. You believed, no one can save me, so I might as well live for myself. 
That's how far Jesus stoops down to the scum. And the people who knew that's what they were and felt that's what they were. See, friends, Jesus can't meet you near heaven or even halfway. Jesus can't meet you there. He can only meet those who are aware of their bottomness. Who have no illusions that they, on their own, they can't live close, somewhere close to wellness. Somewhere close to living a somewhat healthy and balanced life. We use those words still today, don't we? In a nutshell this morning, I'll say it this way. In Himself, Jesus offers the shortcut of a miracle cure. And the question is, do you need it? Jesus offers the shortcut of a miracle cure. Do you need it? And I want to say that the Christian life is all about shortcuts. You'd be mishearing me. But everything starts with and depends on the shortcut of total abandonment of all works, total abandonment of all moral goodness to trust that Jesus Christ alone can rescue you from an eternity separated from God. Only He can do it. You have to abandon your moral goodness, abandon your I'm pretty good, I'm pretty close, I'm almost there. You have to abandon it and trust that Jesus was good enough. That He is so good, I can't even come close. That's where you have to get. How will you respond? Let me suggest four possible responses to the shortcut of a miracle cure. Number one, here's one response. I judge my preventative health plan better. Now you hear people talk about this with their literal health. That I practice preventative health. I, you know, I, I eat, I exercise, I do cleanses regularly, these sorts of things, right? So that, you know, I don't have to go to the doctor very much. Sometimes people can be even haughty about it. Right? Like, do you do this? I do this. Do you do this diet? I do it, yes. Remember, remember the Atkins diet and the paleo diet? I'm not dissing those things, but sometimes you're like, I'm pretty close to uh, completely healthy. You know? If you read the Bible, if you've been around preachers long enough, you'll hear this oft-mentioned group, the Pharisees, tend to get demonized, don't they? They get a pretty bad rap. So who is a Pharisee? And specifically, a scribe of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are basically like what a denomination is to a Christian church today. All right? Like a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Church of God member, a United Church, whatever it might be. They're kind of like that. There are all these sects of Judaism that have different little beliefs about who Yahweh is and how to respond to him, how to worship him. And despite a heavy emphasis on them in the Gospels, they actually represent a very small minority of Jews. I think that's because they get so close. They get so close to complete health that Jesus worries about them the most. They believed all the Jewish trouble and divine punishment that they received stemmed from failure to live faithfully according to God's law that was given through Moses. As times grew more modern, only the religious elite could understand all the intricacies of that law. How do we follow it? And how do we do this in our modern lifestyle? You know, I know that doesn't seem modern to us anymore. For first century AD, it was getting modern. Things were happening in a Roman government, in a Roman world. 
The Pharisees were actually the common man's sect. They were the blue-collar workers kind of Judaism. They tried to make the law doable for the common modern man. It's just interesting, right? You don't often think of the Pharisees that way. They were the snobby people. So, for instance, keeping the Sabbath day holy by resting. Well, they tried to make ways to obey that law by, by saying only this can be done to maintain a modern household. Only these sorts of things can be done. You can't wash dishes here, but you can do this. And that's how you made sure you were obeying God's law. They took the law and tried to interpret and apply it in a way that would prevent people, the common people, from breaking it. Does that make sense? So they tried to help people and see, like, here's ways you can prevent breaking God's law. Not unlike if you took a sermon today in which I'm trying to help us interpret and apply God's word to life, but then took everything I said about God's word and began treating it as law. That was the problem. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They took these interpretations and people began treating them like they were a law unto themselves. As if you walked away from the day's sermon and said, everything Ryan said, I have to live by for the rest of my life. Not understanding that, A, I'm a fallible person. I'm going to say some things that may or may not be from the Holy Spirit. Hopefully most of it is. But it's also not applicable for all of our life. Sermons, preaching God's word, is for t- particular time and place and particular people. Sunrise Community Church. If you were to take those things and make them law, then you would get into trouble. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. The scribes, the pastors, took what they saw as 613 commandments in the Torah, and they did what was called make a hedge around them. Make them easier to follow. Make them understandable for modern life. In doing so, people genuinely, these people genuinely tried to help in the prevention plan against breaking God's law. And they lived lives that looked pretty close to obedience. The key word here, guys, if you remember nothing else about the Pharisees, is close. So close. Because the closer one gets in the appearance on the outside, the less he or she is to notice the internal disease on the inside called sin. And that was Jesus' big worry for the Pharisees. You're so close that you cannot see the disease on the inside, your desperate need for help and for rescuing. My brother is a doctor. He's a surgeon in Seattle, Washington, back in the States. And years ago, he was describing to me especially why lymphoma is a particularly dangerous kind of cancer in its detection because the major symptoms are items like shortness of breath, fatigue, these sorts of symptoms. And so if you had it, the treatment you might think is easy enough. I'll just exercise a little bit more so I don't have that shortness of breath. I'll go to bed a little earlier so my fatigue lessens. See what I'm saying? You might mistake the symptoms for the disease. If the symptoms were more extreme, a mass, right? Sharp pains, fevers. You might more quickly seek treatment. What is wrong? Sin is the inherited disease of rebellion which manifests itself in symptoms of disobedience to God's law. The disease is going on on the inside. On the outside, you break God's law. That's like the symptoms. 
when the symptoms are less extreme, less obvious, well, then I'll just kind of tweak my life a little bit. Just go to church a couple more times. Might do a couple more good deeds. While the maelstrom of death lies beneath. We don't notice it. And that's the big worry. In fact, as I was praying this week, there are three types of people who came to mind for whom I worry here in Cayman are, are in constant danger of missing the seriousness of the disease of sin in their life. And number one is professional, so-called professional and long-time Christians. Let me just start with myself, pastors. People who are clergy, who are pastors, who are ministers, who kind of try to help people for a living, who try to do the Christian life, and sometimes you feel like it's for a living. And on the outside, maybe things are going well, but on the inside, you stop recognizing as you're doing what you're supposed to do, the disease called sin, the neediness for Jesus. It's an easy thing. Also, other, other Christians, kind of Olympian Christians who've been walking with Jesus for a while, and they have seen real transformation in their life. And so they think, yeah, I'm pretty good now. It's a dangerous place to be. Another group of people I worry for are charity workers and volunteers. That's right, they're not the expected people. But the charity workers, that, maybe that's you. And by the way, I look at so many charity workers and volunteers, people who are so much better than me, I look at their lives. Large-hearted persons who take care to care for all without taking religious sides or getting too passionate about religion. Serving as Jesus called you to serve, but you're not actually being served with the cure that might heal you. That's a dangerous place because you're living so close to the life Jesus calls you to live. Because you live so close, you can't see the disease lurking within. Let me give you one other group of people I worry for. Good moms and dads. You're a good mom, you're a good dad. By the way, being a parent can equally drive you to Jesus. <laughs> of course, as well, like, there are moments like when your child's two and three and four and five and teenagers <laughs> where it can drive you to Jesus for help or if you're doing pretty well, if you're a good parent, you pat yourself on the back. And I say especially dads because there are not a lot of good dads, we think. In our society today, we hear it all the time. Where are the fathers? People looking for male role models and you are one and you're getting a pat on your back from your wife. At least he's a good husband and a good father. So it's easy in those moments to compare yourself to others and think, I'm doing pretty well. How much do I really need Jesus? I'm a pretty good person. It's a dangerous place to be. My hope, my prayer is that you see that Jesus' words applied to you as well, just as they applied to the Pharisees who were in that same dangerous place. Not the righteous who are in need of a cure, but those who are sick. You too are sick. You need Jesus. I want to appeal to you. A second response you might make to this miracle shortcut cure. You see your sickness and you know you're in need of it. You know you're in need of the shortcut miracle cure. I hope that's you. Jesus is willing to condescend all the way to you. Don't try to fix or tinker your life to make it just a little bit better through self-discipline and this and that. He does His best, most lasting, most gracious work when you know that you're at your least. When you know that you need desperate help. Friends, if you know that to you, 
Here's good news for you. Jesus condescends all the way. A type of person you may not expect for whom, like the tax collector, I gain great hope for this week are professionals. Professionals here in Cayman who, I'm not saying all professionals do this, but professionals who do one thing and one thing only. They're here to make money and live for themselves. I actually have great hope for such people in those situations. That's a strange thing to say, right? I thought you would say the poor people, the charitable people, the people who you know, are sick and in hospitals or infirm, Brian. I thought you'd say those people. Who are the people most like the tax collectors who knew that they were living a life for money and for advancement? They were the professionals. Like the tax collector, you don't see an easy way back to morality, and so you've never taken it. Maybe that's you or a friend of yours. You've never taken it. You're too far away. You desperately would need a shortcut. And Jesus offers it to you. Through trust in him. That's all. He offers you a shortcut. Number three, a third response. You have seen, you still see your sickness. You respond to the shortcut miracle cure with a life of thanksgiving. Friends, as long as you stick your nose in the Word of God and stick to life and community with other people, you'll keep seeing your need for help, your need for the good news of Jesus, getting at work and into your life and transforming you from the inside out. You're going to see it. You will ask the question as I have, man, why me? God, why did you choose me? I mean, I used to ask this about the same brother, the doctor brother I mentioned earlier, who was an overachieving, successful, humble, more humble than I was, thoughtful, self-sacrificing hubby, responsible father in a way that I wasn't, but who didn't know Jesus. Why would you choose me over him, Jesus? I I don't understand. He's gradually come to trust Jesus now, which, of course, I'm incredibly grateful. Why me? I looked at my life this past week, and I still think, why me? You ever have those weeks where you're just, one day, I'm, one afternoon, I'm, I'm totally paralyzed, totally paralyzed by my own lack of love for others. I would just, it just hit me. I was like, man, so convicted, embarrassed. Shane, I, I almost just couldn't move. I didn't respond by looking to Jesus right away. I tried to. It was a struggle. I had it the next night, Tuesday night, my wife and I, we stayed out too late one night, you know, I was kind of indulging and enjoying myself. This sort of, we were at a friend's house. It wasn't at like, you know, Legends or something like that. But uh, I mean, whatever. Like, we're out too late. I was indulging. I, you know, I just, I just look at my life. I think, my gosh, I, why me, Lord? Why would you choose me? Paul ponders this undeserved mercy in his letter to the Romans. This undeserved mercy. And he puts a stop to it. Puts a stop to the pondering. Just read what he says. This is the New Living Translation. Romans 11, 33-36. Just listen to this if you would. He says, Oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions, his methods. Who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who knows enough to be his counselor? Who could ever give him so much that he would pay it back? For everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power. It's intended for his glory. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's his conclusion. You know, 
I don't even understand. I don't understand. All I know is he is incredibly merciful and glorious, and it's all for him, and it's awesome. And he would choose someone like us. Ultimately, all we can do is give thanks and live a life of thanksgiving. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is the Savior's love for me. One final response. You can tell another sick person where they can find the shortcut miracle cure. Evangelism, which is basically telling other people about this good news, has often been described as one beggar telling another beggar where they can find food. One beggar telling another beggar where they can find food. If you know you are desperately sick without Jesus, how might you tell another sick person where they can find the cure? Where they can find a shortcut, miraculous, life-changing cure. How can you do that in your life? Let me give you a practical option. Start with prayer. Start with pleading with God. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray, pray, pray. Pray that He helps you show you how you might co-labor with Him in telling a person where they can find the cure. We were having a prayer vigil this Saturday centered around these two urgent prayer requests. Each of you was given a card at the door. All right, hold this card up if you haven't. We're having a prayer vigil this Saturday. um, And we want people to write down on this card your name, a not-yet-found person's name, just their first name, and there's maybe a couple basic info, pieces of information about how you know them. I want us to take a couple minutes right now. Acknowledge to Jesus, man, Jesus, thank you for condescending to rescue me. And ask the question, to whom? What person or persons do you want me to participate in telling them about this cure? This cure of the good news. In other words, this is not just for people for whom we'll pray on Saturday, but you've got to be willing to participate in telling them and inviting them to hear about the cure. You will be willing to risk your reputation, risk infection, risk being taken advantage of as Jesus was. So what I want us to do, let's turn down the lights. We're just going to take a couple minutes, grab a pen and this card, pray about, God, who do you want me to pray for? Who could use prayer? Who do you want me to participate in, being a co-laborer with you, and bringing them to the cure that is Jesus Christ.